Father, we ask right now that you would please speak to us for we are, are in desperate need. We want to drink deeply from your word and we want to be nourished in your spirit. And so we pray that you might do this at, at this time right now as we gather to worship you. Please speak to us for your servants are listening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're now, this is our second week in Deuteronomy, and last week we just did kind of an overview sermon. I think most of you were here of, of Deuteronomy, um, just basically looking at how a bit of a framework for how we're going to approach Deuteronomy. And this week we're jumping into chapter one. And the first uh, four chapters of Deuteronomy, which we'll kind of spend several weeks in, are really Moses just kind of recounting Israel's history. So Israel, the first generation that were called out of Egypt, were a rebellious, stiff-necked people. God himself describes them as. And as a result of their rebellion, they don't actually enter into the promised land and God leads them in. 40 years in the wilderness until that first generation has all died off. And this is Moses retelling the story of what happened to the first generation to now the second generation as a way of basically exhorting them in a sermon, basically. He's kind of expositing the word to the people as a way of saying, like, don't make the same mistakes as this first generation did. We're about to enter into this inheritance that God has given to us. So walk in obedience to the Lord your God. Walk in obedience to his ways as he has commanded you. For that will be your righteousness and that will be your peace as you walk in God's ways entering into this promised land. So that's kind of what's happening now. Moses is speaking to the second generation of Israel and retelling what has happened. And the first four chapters are really um, that story. So the first half of chapter one, which we'll go through today, starts in verse one. We read they're beyond the Jordan. Um, which is basically saying they're just, they're not in the promised land. They're from Jerusalem's perspective. They're on the other side of the Jordan. So they're looking into the promised land, but they're not yet there. They're kind of on the cusp of it. And we read from verse two, how it was an 11 day journey from Horeb, which is the region also known as Mount Sinai. It was an 11 day journey from that area to Kadesh Barnea, which is on the, the base of the promised land. Yet it took them 40 years to do an 11 day journey. And so Moses is kind of rallying them after an exhausting journey saying, hey, you guys, we're finally here at this point where we can enter in to God's promises. And one of the key themes throughout really the Old Testament, particularly the Torah, the first five books of the Bible is this idea of the promised land. And that's what we're going to focus on today, this idea of the promised land, which is where God promises, you probably remember, to Abraham that he will um, lead Abraham into this new area, make him into a great nation there, this area called the promised land. And the promise of that gets handed down to Abraham's descendants until finally this people of Israel are at this 
point where there's such a numerous people that they're finally able to enter into this land. And so in verse eight, this is kind of like the main passage of today where Moses speaks on behalf of God. And he says in verse eight, I have set the land before you go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. So what is the point of this promised land? What's the point of this? And uh, some of you would be aware, we, we can kind of trace that back to Genesis 12, where God appears to Abraham. And in that passage, he, he tells Abraham to leave his, his family, to leave his country. And he says, and go into this land, which I'll tell you about later. Just follow me, head into this distant land, and I'll tell you all about it later. Just trust me. And God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and you will be a blessing to others through my work in you. You will actually be a blessing and those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. So you probably are familiar with that, but that's not actually the first time in the Bible, in biblical history, that we see this idea of a beautiful land given to God's people. So if we go all the way back to the creation narrative in Genesis 1, we read how there is this beautiful land that God gives to humanity, to Adam and Eve, to dwell in it, and God is actually walking among them. So in Genesis 1:26, God says, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea." and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And the word for earth there is the exact same word for land. In Hebrew, there's really one word that is referred to as land, which referring to like a specific part of the earth, or it's referring to the fullness of earth, but it's the same word. So it's the same idea there. We get this picture of God creating this land for his people. And he says, I'm going to dwell among you. We know that God was walking among them. There was uninhibited presence from God. There was this beautiful land. But then we know that sin corrupts humanity. Um, Adam and Eve are effectively exiled from that garden. So they're kicked out of God's presence, out of this beautiful, peaceful land that is now, as a result of that, under God's curse. So the hope for humanity, really from the very start of the Bible, the main hope for humanity becomes that this land of where we dwell in God's presence would finally be restored. And tied into that is, of course, the gospel, because it's our sin that separates us. So we need a redeemer to actually free us from our sin to then bring us back into God's presence. And so with that framework. Now we get back to Abraham and I think you can see pretty clearly this picture of God's redemption where God basically says to Abraham like with this whole story of history in view, okay there is hope. There is hope Abraham for restoration. There's hope for uh, coming into my presence. There's hope for this land where I will dwell among you. And so we see this promise delivered to Abraham's descendants until eventually the whole people of Israel are ready to inherit this promise at the point of Deuteronomy. And so I wonder if you can see, 
I wonder if you can see how there is a clear connection with the promised land and the restoration of God's creation. There's a clear connection with this promise of land and also the promise of restoration of what God did in creation, which is create this beautiful place for his people to dwell and ultimately to worship him, to enjoy his presence, to live in obedience with him. And so you see this so clearly actually through this um, prominent theme in the Old Testament of the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? It was the place of God's presence among the people. The tabernacle was God saying, this is where I will dwell and the tabernacle will be the sacrificial system, the right order so that you can worship me properly. So it was the place of God's presence and the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle and we probably remember stories of where the Ark of the Covenant was taken away and so God's presence was taken from the people. So there's this theme while the people are about to enter into the promised land of God actually giving layers and layers on this of just going into great detail of the tabernacle because that was going to be the place of his presence in this land. It's foreshadowing that God's desire for the promised land is ultimately to dwell among his people as was always intended. And that's why in John 1, the author John records Jesus coming as he tabernacled among us. That's John 1.14. So it's this idea of God's whole intention for humanity is to dwell among his people. This is the, the big picture idea here. The big picture idea for God's people then and for us is that our hope is that we can enter into this promise of rest in the presence of God. God is basically saying, hey, my plan is to be with you. God is not a distant God. My plan is to actually be with you, to dwell among you. And so he does that here for the Israelites, leading them into this area of Canaan which is going to be the promised land. And you might be asking why Canaan? Like God appeared to Abraham in this place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which is modern day Iraq. And you kind of think, well, why couldn't God have just said to Abraham, hey, Abraham, you're here. I'm going to do great things through you. Don't want to be a burden to you. So I'll just make you into a great nation here. You've got some, you've got a good family already. This seems like a place. I'm God. I can do anything. So I'll just do it here. But he doesn't. He tells him to leave that place and head to this land of Canaan that was already inhabited by people. And one of the keys to this is that the land of Canaan was geographically central to the world's powers of that day. So you had the Hittites and the Syrians to the north, and then you had the Mesopotamians to the east, you had Egypt, this great power right to the south, and then you had the Aegeans, which is modern day Greece, to the west. And Israel was smack bang, or the land of Canaan was smack bang in the middle of that. And this is because God's intention was that his people would be, as they would get the call later on in Isaiah, a light to the nations, central to the place of what at the time was the world powers of the day. But it is also so that God would actually display his power in both ways in actually having his people there and then using these great nations to actually discipline his people when he wanted to, when they fell into sin and he would allow the powers of that day to come in. But he would also then display his glory by allowing these great powers 
to come and try and conquer them and then God would just overrun them and display his power among them. So God's promise of giving the people land to dwell where God would be among them is necessarily tied to God's commitment to bring glory to his name, demonstrating that he is central to all life and existence. So he brings this nation and sets them into a place that at that time was central to all life and existence. And that's why God sets them in the land of Canaan, because God's people are to be a reflection of God. And so this is why he sets them in the midst of the nations. And we'll read this in Deuteronomy 4, where God actually says to them through Moses, obey my commandments, like live in um, obedience to my covenant law so that the nations that look upon you will say, wow, what a wise and understanding people. And then they will say, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon them? That was the point so that people would look upon and say, wow, what great nation has a God so near to them, has a God in their presence? So this is the point here. God is leading his people into a promised land to restore what was lost in the original creation to restore what was lost in this original land given to humankind, which is under God's curse because of sin. His his, uh, point is that he wants to dwell among his people. And we actually see this in the second half of our passage today in verses 9 to 18. We're just going to spend like a, a really brief time on this second half. But this is about leadership and God actually bringing order to his people. So from verses 9 to 18, Moses recounts how he had to create orderly leadership to govern his people. And so from verse 16, he reminds them that he told the people of Israel these to actually set judges. And then he told the judges to judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's. Now, there are many practical applications that we could get on leadership. And if you were in another church, maybe I would spend uh, the whole time giving five tips on godly leadership. But I don't actually think that's the point of this passage. I think the clear point from the context is that God wants to form this community in his likeness. God wants to actually dwell among his people. And God is a God of order and justice. So there must be order and justice among his people. They are not to be like the other nations, which are disorderly and which lack justice. They have to judge fairly, so fairly that even the alien among them gets the same treatment. Even the foreigner, this is radical. This is like for this context, this is huge to say, even the foreigner residing among you, you must judge fairly. Even though they had no rights and in any other nation, they would not get a single ounce of justice. Yet God is saying you have to judge fairly. And Moses, Moses says, don't be intimidated. Why? Because the judgment is God's. So he's saying, we're actually speaking on behalf of God, handing down his judgments. Because the point is that in this community, God is present among us. That's the point of God's people. But unfortunately, I'm probably not spoiling the story. You probably know this. It didn't exactly work out well for the Israelites. The promised land 
wasn't, um, it didn't live up to hype for them because of their rebellion and sin. And so we actually see the same pattern as what happened in the original creation, where Adam and Eve were exiled from the land, cast out of God's presence. And the people of Israel in both tribes, Judah and Israel, were exiled from their land. They were sent off to Assyria and to Babylon. They were cast out of that promised land. And they never actually regained the land entirely, even when they were brought back. They remained under foreign occupation. The Persians were over them, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And they never actually regained their land and regained the power, the godly authority that they had. And so how do we then understand this idea of a promised land for us? How do we understand this promise? If for them, they never actually achieved it in a sense they're still waiting and that's what the author of hebrews talks about now the promised land was clearly a literal place as we've just said it was the land of canaan and god did bring them into it but hopefully you have seen that this is also clearly symbolic of god's uh, presence and his promises it's symbolic of god actually promising to dwell among his people And so throughout the Old Testament, the promised land is also referred to as an inheritance. That's the other word used for it, this idea of an inheritance. So in Deuteronomy 12, verse 9, it says, You have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit... So this is the idea, it's an inheritance. And that's why the New Testament authors also speak of this idea of an inheritance. That's one of the promises we have. So Paul says in Ephesians 1, we have obtained an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance and we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So we were sealed with the Holy Spirit The Holy Spirit is actually the guarantee that we will obtain this inheritance that we wait for. This uninhibited communion with our great and mighty God, our promised land. So there's a clear link between God's promise of land and where he would dwell among his people. And then this inheritance that we are promised as those who have been redeemed by Christ, this inheritance that we have. And we actually see this in the prophet Isaiah, who is speaking to Israel. And I'm kind of, I'm trying not to, but I'm going to be bouncing a little bit around text here, but I'll try and be very clear to, to read it out. And so just um, bear with me as, as much as is possible. I think like you'll see just the clear connection, this single thread all throughout scripture. But when we think about these promises of the promised land given to Israel, and then this inheritance that we have under the new covenant, this is how we understand it. See, in Isaiah 49, in Isaiah 49, uh, there is a promise from God and the promise comes after exile. Isaiah 49 is like a post-exilic book that, uh, or at least section of the book. So that is set after the people of Israel had been cast out of Jerusalem, out of their promised land and they're, they're in Babylon. And God promises this restoration. And he says 
In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. This is God. This is a messianic passage. This is God talking about this servant whom he will send. I will give you as a covenant to the people. It's talking about Jesus. I will give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land. Christ was given to us as a covenant, that is to bring about the new covenant, to bring about the new covenant, forgiveness of sins, where we are actually restored into intimacy with our Saviour through the blood of Christ. And this promise, all the way back in Isaiah, surely referred to a greater promise than simply the physical land we now know as Israel, right? And I believe there is clearly a symbolism to this because Jesus states these same ideas when he enters into his ministry and he actually takes themes from Isaiah 61, but they're the exact same themes as what we just read out in Isaiah 49, this idea of saying to the prisoners, come out, of actually setting the captives free, of restoration. And Jesus comes along and in his Nazareth sermon, he opens the scroll of Isaiah And he says, God has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to give freedom to those who are are oppressed. Now, we know that Jesus did heal blind people, but we don't have any records of him setting prisoners free. And so while he did literally heal blind people and uh, potentially set people free, like from demons, I think the, the big picture here is this idea of actually Jesus coming to set people free from captivity of sin and oppression, bringing them back in to their uh, saviour through his blood. And that's what he came to do. And so this promise of Jesus to restore the land, which it says in Isaiah 49, is actually being fulfilled now as more and more people receive the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance. And it will also be completely fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. That's how we understand that, that there is this promise that we have of the promised land. And the inheritance that we now have is actually that promised land because the promised land was always pointing to this day where God will undo everything that happened under the curse in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will actually dwell in his presence. He will dwell among us. God will be all in all. The promised land is the goal of our salvation. And even Abraham had this promise where the ultimate promised land was not the physical location his descendants received a few centuries after he died. And the writer of Hebrews kind of goes out of his way, I think, to show that this was actually referring to a greater and better promise. So in Hebrews 11, the author says from verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 
And then in verse 16, the author of Hebrews recaps not only Abraham, but all of these other people in the wall of faith that he has mentioned before. And he says, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, this heavenly Jerusalem. And so if we understand this promised land to God's people rightly, this promise given for the people of Deuteronomy, then it is actually something that we look forward to. It's actually something that we, with joy, look forward to. And that must mean, the implication of that must mean that we, just like we're going to read through in the people of Deuteronomy, have this kind of wanderer or pilgrim identity, this sojourner. And that's why the New Testament authors give us that identity. I'm not making this up or pulling it out. You can see Peter in 1 Peter 2 calls us strangers and exiles. So another way of understanding this wanderer identity is as exiles, because whenever God's people were not in the promised land, they were effectively in exile. They were out. They're not, they're not at home. And we, likewise, if our promise is this heavenly reward of dwelling with God, then we now in this world are actually exiles. We're pilgrims. We're still waiting for this promised land. And so as we read these promises to take the land that Moses says here in verse 8, we know that God's ultimate purpose in this is to prepare a place for his people where he will dwell among them and where they will be unified under his glorious name. That's his purpose. And as we wait for this, like God's people so often have been, we are exiles, we're strangers in this land. And I wanna finish with an implication of this, sort of a missional implication of this. There is actually, a really liberating aspect of this if we understand this identity. Like, don't, don't let this, I know it can seem really abstract, don't, don't let this stay abstract. It's actually something concrete for us to understand who we are as a people and how we are different from everyone else in this world who does not follow Christ, because there should be a clear difference. And so the liberating aspect of this, of understanding this identity as we're on this way to the promised land, is that we can lose this Christendom mentality because we're free to speak from the margins of society. And I'll explain that. So Christendom is, you know, this idea that from about the fourth century all the way up until really like a hundred years ago, but certainly from the Enlightenment, 17th, 18th century. So for almost 1500 years, the world was heavily Christian. So the church had a prominent place in society. Christendom is this idea that after Constantine made Christianity the world religion of that time, it was normal, it was assumed that you would be a Christian. And uh, Christianity actually bought you respect and power. Whereas now the church is not in a place of power. Christianity doesn't have anything to do with public decisions. And while even like 80 years ago, Christianity was kind of the measurement of morality. And so some people would say, oh, I'm, 
um, too immoral to be a Christian or like Christianity was like, you're a do-gooder. Like, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. Now it's the total opposite. Now it's like, I'm too good to be a Christian. I'm too woke to be such a bigot and live in such a, a, a stupid mindset. Christianity is actually seen as immoral now. Morality is not defined by Christianity. But this place, this place in society is actually where we have seen mission explode again and again throughout the history of the church. From the sidelines, so to speak, rather than from the center of the world's power. And we are a voice from the margins or from the sidelines of this society. And so was the early church. Being a Christian in the first second, uh, the first few centuries really didn't get you anything. In the first century, it would get you a ticket to be burnt on Nero's garden, burnt alive at night. Nero was the Roman emperor. Even a few hundred years later in the third century, there was an emperor who basically um, put out an order that said, if you see a Christian, um, or he, he actually said, um, don't go hunting down Christians, but if you see one, of course, kill it. Kind of like a cockroach. Like he was saying, they're not even worthy of you going out and hunting them down. But of course, if you come across one, yes, kill it. Kill Christians. That's what we should be doing. And so Christianity in this time did not win you any favors. Yet the early church exploded in that place. It exploded from people who were on the margins of society, who went about gossiping the gospel not because they had power, not because they wanted power in this world, but because they had a profound hope in another world where they had their hearts set on and therefore they were totally fine to remain a people on the margins of society. Like, you know how in our day and age in this society of political correctness, if you're in a place of power, like if you're a politician, you basically can't say anything controversial. You just have to stay within this fine line of political correctness and you don't want to say anything controversial because you'll just get cancelled in this culture. Whereas people who aren't in positions of power, who are from the margins, can kind of say whatever they want. They have nothing to lose. And I think too often we as Christians in this modern age, we are too apologetic about the gospel because for some reason we still have this Christendom mentality where we're worried about saying anything that might cause us to lose influence in this society, any influence we might have. Or if not that, then we simply care too much about this world. We care too much about our status or our place in this world. But if you understand, like if you understand this exile, this pilgrim identity, then you are set free from the worries of this world. Because guess what? You don't live for it. You don't actually live for this. And it's not in a neglectful way. It's not neglecting society. We wouldn't have moved over to Canberra to try and engage with the society if that was the case. But it's because we have our hearts set on this city whose builder and architect is God, this heavenly city, this promised land, that we're actually not so pulled asway. We're not tossed to and fro by whatever happens in this world because our hope is not set on this world. We actually have an exile, pilgrim mentality. And this gives our mission in this society 
a wonderful, liberating, nothing to lose aspect. Like we have nothing to lose in this world, and yet everything to gain in this heavenly city which we await. We see this, I think, so clearly in the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus in the first century. The Pharisees were the in crowd, like they were popular. You wanted to be in with the Pharisees. They held sway in Jerusalem of that time. They were kind of in a, a Christendom age and the Pharisees were those who were most popular. Whereas Jesus went about and he just didn't care about that. His mission was to proclaim this kingdom and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. He was totally set free from that. So this is an identity that we should hold very dear as we live in the society of Canberra as exiles and pilgrims. And it's not, again, it's not in a way that we, we neglect this world. It actually causes us to engage in a way that is not so dependent upon the things of the world because our hope is not set upon this world. So this is actually why we engage because there are people in this society who don't live for this heavenly promise. There are probably people in this church, there are probably people in churches all across Canberra, but there are people outside of the church who don't live for this heavenly promise. And if you believe the Bible, if you believe the gospel, you know that that is a depressing and pitiful, pitiable existence. And we were in it and we have no superiority to be called out of that, none at all. It's actually by God's grace. But that is why we engage, because we want, we want people to be brought out of that where their hope is set upon nothing. I remember I walked through Tuggeranong shops the other day and there was a sign saying, hold on to hope. And uh, it was for Beyond Blue, which is a great thing. But I thought, well, what's the hope in? The hope is just empty. You're just holding on to hope. What's the hope in? And our hope is in Christ. It's actually an anchor for our soul, this hope, this heavenly promise. It's a concrete hope. And so as we go about our mission in this community, we do so as pilgrims and exiles with this beautiful hope so that we are set free from the worries of this world. And we are calling people in love. Hey, come out of that. Turn to this living hope. Turn to this hope in Christ. Turn to him. That's hope. There's hope. And so that's how we go about our mission. We as pilgrims toward this promised land, we're liberated from this world because we are strangers. That's who we are. That's our identity. And while we're here, while we have breath in our lungs, we are calling people in this world to the promised land. We're calling them by proclaiming Christ and Christ crucified, the means by which we are justified and brought into this living hope where we have our eyes set upon this heavenly city.